And in verse 12, where the writer says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, because we are made partakers of Christ if we hold to the beginning of our confidence firm unto the end. So our title is simply, Exhort One Another. In this chapter, in this book rather, the writer is trying to exhort and admonish them as it relates to running the race set before them. Many have already departed from the living God back to Jerusalem, the dead city, which would be dead very soon after the writing of this letter. And he is encouraging them to go back, not to go back rather, but forward to the Christ by which all the types and shadows and everything of the Mosaic age has been fulfilled in him. And he would encourage us to not to depart, but to move forward. So in the first six verses, the writer will compare the faithfulness of Moses to that of Christ. And truly, Moses was faithful in all his house, the house of the church in the wilderness, the house of the Mosaic Age that gets his name, probably because primarily the most characteristic elements of the Mosaic Age started under Moses' leadership. The tabernacle, the law, the priesthood, and the sacrifices. He was faithful in laying out the instruction. He was faithful to all the house of Israel, the church in the wilderness. Christ is also faithful to His house, which would be the house of the church age, the gospel age, the house of the New Testament church. Now, the comparison is that Christ is worthy of more honor than Moses because He built the house, and as God... He's builder of all things. So the supremacy of Christ over Moses is the fact that he is the supreme, infinite, eternal God. And Moses, although faithful, is but a mere man. Secondly, Moses was faithful as a servant for a testimony of things to be spoken. But Christ, as a son of the living God, he's the eternal son. So his supremacy in this book is marked out and highlighted over faithful Moses as he was, yet there is no comparison between Moses and the Christ. So we're a part of the house if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing that comes from hope firm unto the end. Then in verse 7, the writer is going to draw a conclusion as relates to verse 6 and say, Wherefore, verse 12, Take heed. Wherefore, based on the supremacy of Christ, based on the fact that Christ is a son over his own house, and we demonstrate we're part of the house by our perseverance in faith, wherefore, exhort one another. So we'll look at three things. What is it that the writer wants us to avoid? Secondly, the means of avoiding it. And how does exhortation into that, and then thirdly, the reason for avoiding it. What is the danger he wants us to avoid? So the writer uses the word lest two times. Lest there be in any of us an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. Lest, he repeats the word, you have an evil, or your heart be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So the word lest means It's a phrase that means in order to prevent something from happening that is undesirable. In order that something does not happen, something is avoided when we take heed less. What does the writer want us to avoid? An evil, unbelieving, hardened heart that departs from God because of the seduction of sin. See the parallels. The last clues us in, he's giving a parallel. Lest there be an evil heart of unbelief, and what answers to that? Lest you have a hard heart. Because an evil, unbelieving heart is a hardened heart. Lest you depart from the living God, 
And why would we do that? The deceitfulness or the seduction of sin. And if the writer says, lest there be in any of us, that means the warning and the danger is a real danger. We should not pass it off as an unreal danger. This is the Word of God speaking to us. And He says, lest. So we want to hear what God says to avoid an evil, unbelieving, hardened heart that departs from God because of the seduction of sin. Now the parenthesis that is given beginning in verse 7 is going to give us first a progression of a hardened heart and then an illustration of a hardened heart. As we look at the fathers of the Hebrews he's writing to whose hearts were hardened. So I think it's good for us to understand this progression. Departing is a present tense verb. So there's something happening on a continuous way here. So what is the progression of a hardened heart that exhortation in part is to help us to avoid? Well, look at the parenthetical expression again in verse 7. Wherefore, parenthesis, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if you will hear His voice, harden not. The first step in a hardening heart is a failure to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. We could call that spiritual procrastination. We all understand, or at least I do, very well what procrastination is. It's when you delay something. You put it off until tomorrow. And of course, tomorrow never comes, does it? Today, if you will hear His voice... Exhort one another today, while it is called today and not tomorrow. Hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. This is the first step. Procrastination can happen because of a lot of reasons. You know, when I open up the two doors on my outdoor shed, and I look at it, my first thought, I've got to clean this out. But it is so overwhelming. I close the door and I say, tomorrow. I have been saying tomorrow. In fact, I'm I'm just going to leave that alone. I've been saying it a long time. Fear, overwhelmed, many reasons we can procrastinate. But here, it's spiritual. And I won't deny there could be a real link between the two, my shed and spiritual procrastination. We put off and we delay again and again and again. And what's happening? Your heart is being hardened to the voice of the living God. Because we know in the Bible to hear is not just to hear, it's to take action. It's to do something. And we hear sermon after sermon where the Holy Spirit is clearly communicating to you every Sunday. If we're being faithful to the Word, if... We're just taking His Word and exposing it to you. He is speaking to you Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And if we keep delaying clearly what He is saying, then the heart is moving toward a departure from the living God. Listen to James in one twenty-two, where he says to the man who's a Jew, the Christian Jew, he's writing to the Christian Jew here, the writer, he would say, but be ye... Doers of the word are not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. A hardened heart is deceived by the seduction of sin. And when we just hear and we never do, then we're just deceiving ourselves. So in saying, being not just a hearer but a doer, don't be like the man who beholds his face in a glass or a mirror. And he beholding himself straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Now, we all understand the function and purpose of a mirror is to do what? It's simply to accurately reflect who you are at any given moment or snapshot in your life. Whether it's one of those small ones you pull out of your purse, where it's the rearview mirror, where you wake up in the morning, which is sometimes why we scream when we look, because we know, we understand what I'm looking at in the mirror is an accurate reflection 
of my physical face at that moment. This man comes in and he hears something. He hears the Holy Spirit speaking to him. Clearly, he hears it. But he never does a thing. Now, what might be happening with this man? Maybe the Holy Spirit speaks, and for a moment he feels some discomfort and some conviction. And it's uneasy for him. He's hearing very clearly, in no unmistakable words, the Holy Spirit is calling the man to make a change. And the Holy Spirit is using the word to give an accurate reflection of the soul. Hebrews chapter 4. For the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide asunder soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of your heart. And the Holy Spirit brings His Word and exposes your heart. And in that moment, you get distracted by the child that's making a noise. Or you check your phone. Or you think this is a time to take the child outside because I'm uncomfortable with what's being said. Or I'll think about what I'm going to do this afternoon. Any number of ways this man that's sitting there in the sanctuary and hears something that brings conviction, he puts it off. He procrastinates. And straightway, as soon as he leaves the building, or as soon as the amen is pronounced, he neglects the word forgive. He doesn't care about what he just heard. What is happening? Self-deception. Hardening. Porosis of the heart is beginning to set in because there was no action taken with regard to what the Holy Spirit convicted the man of. He just put it off. Now, none of us here can ever say, well, that, that's never happened to me, right? But we must be careful that that's not the regular routine and pattern of our lives. Now, I understand procrastination is when you see sometimes 30 things. That's the way I do it. I, I look at a list and I see 30 things. I'm, I, I just start trembling. It's like, I, I can't do it. See, when the Holy Spirit speaks to us, it's just one thing. If you can take one thing... From this sermon today, just take one thing, go home, and then ask the Lord to help you put it in place. Not 30 things. If you hear 30 things, and we can hear maybe more than one convicting thing on any given day in a sermon or when we read the Bible. See, God doesn't expect you to do 30 things at one time. Never happened. One thing. What is God calling you? What's He been calling you in a sermon? One thing in this one another. See, you can walk out of here and we can be just like this man in James 1. We heard a whole series on one another and then I never lift a single finger to do a one anothering thing. See? Over a period of time, the heart begins to harden. What's it being hardened to? The voice of the Holy Spirit. How's it being hardened? Because we're not hearing today. So I'll do that tomorrow. And tomorrow never comes. Beloved, no one here can say, that's never a problem with me. We understand that. But when we take action with God's Word and say, that thing I heard, I'm going to start tonight or tomorrow, and I'm going to look at what God says and ask Him to help me, and we're going to move out in that one thing that He said to me today, and ask Him to give me grace to put it in place. Well, then your heart is not hardened. And that's a lifelong process, isn't it? Preaching keeps going. We read the Bible. We keep going because God is continually calling us to change no matter how old we get. Keep changing as we keep seeing the reflection of God in the mirror as He gives an accurate reflection, reflection of my soul at any given time. The second thing that happens when we delay and procrastinate spiritually is then we begin to slip, Hebrews 2, verse 1. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that we have what? Heard. Lest, there's that word again. Lest means in order to prevent something undesirable from happening. Lest at any time we, writer includes himself, should let them, 
what they heard slip. So procrastination leads to slipping. You start slipping. The word means to let glide by or pass you by or to drift. Like the drifting that happens. A slow movement of a current of air or water. Right? You go fishing on a river. Got your boat out there. You turn the motor off. You start fishing or you just sit there and soak in the sun and you know you, you don't stay there. I mean, it looks like you're staying in one spot, but slowly you start drifting unless you put an anchor down in Hebrews 6, which is called hope, which is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. So the slipping happens because we're not giving earnest heed. That means we're not giving attention to something. We're not regarding what the Holy Spirit is saying. We're putting it off. And then we don't give an earnest heed to the things that they had heard. And what had they heard? The word therefore clues us in to the first chapter. Which tells us what? In the old times they heard from God. Through dreams and visions by the prophets. But in these last days the days leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the Mosaic Age, which is very clear in this book, Hebrews 8. The Old Testament is vanishing, and it did. That was the last days of this book. There are other last days we're approaching when it comes to the bodily return of Jesus Christ. But God has spoken in those last days and hours today through the Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, by whom He made the worlds, plural, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged us of our sins and sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, therefore take heed to the supremacy of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, lest at any time you let Him slip. Verse 2 of chapter 2. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, that's just a statement of fact, right? Every good angel, elect angel that spoke in the Old Testament, what they spoke was steadfast. It happened. And we know that every transgression of the law and every act of disobedience will indeed in fact receive a just a right return on that sin. Either Jesus paid it or the person will. That being true, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Now how do you neglect your salvation? How do you neglect such a great salvation? Well, he tells us in verse 3, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him. You neglect your salvation when you neglect to hear what the Lord spoke about Himself. And then what? He confirmed it unto them that heard Him, the apostles. And then what? They wrote it in a book called the Bible. You neglect the Bible, you neglect your salvation, and you neglect the Lord Jesus Christ. So the procrastination spiritually that keeps saying, I'll get to that tomorrow, then leads us to start drifting and slipping away from our salvation, which is the Lord, because we're drifting from what? the Holy Spirit is telling us about the Lord in the book that He has given to us. Number three, then you become sluggish. Hebrews chapter 5. And if you wanted to argue the uh, order of these steps, no problem with that. There may be one before the other that I'm getting them out of order, but... This is the way I I see them unfolding. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That is Jesus. There's a 
a type and a shadow that Melchizedek was prefiguring about Christ. Of whom, that is Melchizedek, we have many things to say and hard to be uttered or explained. Now why can't this writer explain under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what he wants to explain about Melchizedek? Well, it wasn't because of his inability to explain. What was it? Seeing you are dull of hearing. The word dull is nothros, which means sluggish, languid, a loss of interest, a loss of enthusiasm, kind of dullness and indifference that comes next toward the Word of God, the worship of God, and just the kingdom of God in particular. I just kind of, you know, I could take it or leave it. Just lost my interest. Just lost my zeal. Just don't have a passion for that. I'm just kind of, eh. Verse 12, For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ, let us go on to perfection. What was happening? The sluggishness of the soul stalled them in their maturity. Let us go on to maturity. But you're not moving on, Hebrews. You should know above everybody, in a sense, because you had the Old Testament law, all the types and shadows. You cut your teeth on those. You should be teachers, and now you're like small children who are immature and need milk because you're not ready for the meat of God's Word. What was the problem? Well, it wasn't the problem of the, the writer. It was the problem of the hearer. They were sluggish in hearing. This word is used one other time in Hebrews 6 where the writer says, and I'll give you three verses there. You can turn and look at it if you want to. Verse 10. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward His name, and that you have ministered or served, and you do minister to the saints. We desire that every one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope to the end, so that you be not slothful, sluggish, nothros, languid, loss of interest, loss of enthusiasm. But followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Are you sluggish this morning? Have you become indifferent to the worship of God, to the assembly of the saints? Now, let me be careful to say in Isaiah, he points to a condition of being in darkness and having no light. Where being in darkness doesn't mean procrastination and slipping and sluggishness. And God says to that person, stay in the darkness and trust in the hand of the living God. So you could be indifferent now. You could be cold and not want to be and know you've lost some zeal toward God for which God in His holy purposes may be putting you in that darkness. And He says, stay there. Don't light your own sparks. Don't create your own fire. Stay right there. I have a purpose. But if you're sluggish, beloved, because of an indifference to hearing the Holy Spirit speak through His Word and not taking action on what He says and then it leads to a slipping and a sluggishness, then that's something that God expects us to hear and to repent and to correct. Now, how would we then overcome this sluggishness? Whether Hebrews 5 or Hebrews 6. Well, let me give you those same three verses in the reverse order. I'm in Hebrews 6, verses 10 through 12, I think it is. So don't be slothful, don't be sluggish, don't be indifferent. Show diligence. That's the first thing. Show care, show attention to something, so that you'll have a full assurance of hope to the very end. Well, what does He want you to show diligence towards? To be like those who, what? Ministered and were ministering to the saints. Now, is the writer just saying, look, be diligent, don't be indifferent by starting to love and serve people? I don't think so. 
I think he's saying that will be a byproduct of this diligence. Because in verse 10, he said what? God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you've showed toward his name. His name. And then what happens when you're not indifferent to the name and the glory and the supremacy of God in Christ? Your sluggishness is being overcome. And then what is the outworking of the supremacy of God's glory? It's love to one another. The writer is calling us to love God once again. To see God through the Scripture as the Holy Spirit takes and unveils Christ and His supremacy in this book. The aim is to stir the affections of the hearers to overcome sluggishness, slipping, and procrastination by hearing the voice of the living God. Step four. Chapter 10. Verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner, the custom, the habit of some is. We first delay hearing. We procrastinate. Then we slip. Then we become indifferent and sluggish. Then we start to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It becomes a habit. It becomes a custom. Now, the writer again calls attention to exhorting one another as the basis for not forsaking the assembling, which means what? There's something more going on here than a Sunday morning worship. Right? You're not exhorting anybody right now. You can't do that until this service is over. So, sure, that can happen on a Sunday, but when the church has decided to assemble, don't forsake that. Don't forsake the assembly, but exhort one another. You see? Those are the opportunities we have to exhort and to encourage and to comfort and to strengthen and to warn and to admonish. So this step in departing from the living God gets us to the place where forsaking the assembly becomes a a manner of routine. Maybe it was once, felt some conviction. Maybe later it was another time, knew it wasn't really a good reason In other words, if you tried to tell that reason to God, you just laid it out and said, God, I'm not going to be there today because this is what I'm going to do. And just let God answer that question. You probably won't even have to read a text of the Bible. You just know right away. Your conscience will tell you. God does not approve of that. He's not pleased with that because without faith it's impossible to please God. And so what happens? It becomes easier and easier and easier and becomes habitual and habitual. What is happening? A hard heart is departing from the living God through procrastination, slipping, sluggishness, and now forsaking the assembling together. Next, the warnings of the Bible, they don't have an edge on them anymore. Just no impact. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Doesn't faze me. For if we sin willfully after we have come to the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Doesn't faze me. Doesn't touch me. In fact, that promise can't touch me no matter what we might say. Chapter 4, verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering in His rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. No fear. No fear of God before our eyes. Hebrews chapter 12, see that you refuse not him that speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. Does not faze me. Has no impact whatsoever. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. No fear. This is the progression and the anatomy of a hardened heart. 
that the Bible and this writer are seeking to prevent? And how will it be prevented in part? Today, if you will hear His voice, not tomorrow, but today is the day of salvation. And then finally, the last step, of course, is in our text. A departure. A departing participle verb becomes a departure. And that is what happened to some of the Hebrews. This progression of a hardened heart led them to the place of unbelief and they totally, completely abandoned the faith. That's what this writer's talking about when it would say things, for it is impossible for those once enlightened if they fall away. We fall, do we not? We stray. Prone to, uh, we're prone to stray. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So when the Bible, this book, talks about a falling away, a departing, it means a total, complete abandonment of the faith. That's where a hard heart ultimately lands. Unless something happens on a continual basis to help us keep it in check. Alright, now, it's helpful also to understand not only the progression of a hardened heart, I need to understand when my heart is hardening and look at the signs. And you need to understand when my heart is hardening because you're tasked to exhort me and I to you. But next we see an illustration of this hardening. And I think this is why the writer puts in the parenthesis, sort of a, you know, kind of an afterthought. Let me, let me throw something in here, but it's not thrown in here by God. It's here with purpose. So he would say, again in verse 7, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Here's our illustration and example. This is an example of what not to be. When your fathers, that is the Hebrew fathers of the people he's writing to in this book, the Hebrew Christian, your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, because of this provocation and hardening of the heart, I was grieved with that generation. And God said what? They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my way. So I swear, I swear. When God swears, He's not taking it back. I swear in my wrath and my displeasure, they shall not enter into my rest. So let's look at this illustration. We'll just finish our time on this illustration. Now he's quoting the Holy Spirit from Psalm 95. Psalm 95, the wording is a little bit different where the period is. In verse 9 here it says, When your fathers tempted me and proved me, period, or they saw my works, period, and for 40 years he was grieved. Because we know that when God gave the judgment against Israel in Numbers 14, that started the 40-year period. And at that point, they had seen His works. What works? Ten plagues in Egypt and ten testings they did. God kept count of their testings of Him. These ten times, although they've seen my miracles that I did in Egypt and the wilderness, and now these ten times they have tested me. I swear, they will not enter into my rest, and they didn't. Why? Unbelief. An evil heart of unbelief, hardening, departing, seduction of sin. All right. Now, if you look at Psalm 95, the writer is going to tell us really the basis of this hardening. So it goes like this. For He is our God, we are the people of His pasture, and the sheep of His hand. Harden not your heart. And then the quoting of the text in Hebrews 3. It's on these two points that their heart was hardened. The provision of God were the people of His pasture. The shepherd leads the sheep to the green pastures and He provides for them. They tempted God with regard to His provision. Secondly, His power. We are the sheep of His hand. That could be provision too, right? The power of His providence. They tested God and they tempted God. And that was a great provocation to God and a displeasure. 
Now, to test God means to make demands of God that He prove Himself to be reliable. That's not something we should do with God. God tests us. We do not test God. So in our scripture reading this morning, Brother Adam read Psalm 78, and it's recounted several times, and I'm going to turn there, where the writer would say, they tempted, they provoked, they tested God in the wilderness. Psalm 78, if you want to turn there. Verse 17. And they sinned yet more against Him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness, and they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. So they provoked, they tempted, and they spake against God. They said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Behold, He smote the rock that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can He give bread also? Can He provide flesh for His people? Now let's take the phrase... Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? And look at this provocation. First, can He? A provocation of His power. Well, surely they knew He could do that. They saw ten plagues. They saw water come from a rock. They saw manna come from heaven. They had provision. They questioned His power. Secondly, they questioned His provision. Can He furnish? Can He he supply? Can He provide? Surely they knew that. There was no question. Deuteronomy 9 says, From the time God brought them out of Egypt to the time they went into Canaan, it was a stiff-necked people, which means a hard-hearted people. So although this is recounting after the ten testings in Numbers 14 where God judged them, the attitude for 40 years was much of the same. They kept testing and tempting God. So how is it that they tested His power and His provision? Can God furnish a table? Now this word, table, in the Old Testament, more often than not, is used in connection with a king's table. Saul's table, David's table. The root word is a a spread. Can God furnish a spread? What did God furnish, beloved? He furnished manna. They didn't want that. They asked for meat for their lust. What's wrong with asking for meat? Because in the infinite wisdom of the Almighty, He determined it would be manna. What were they tempting God about? They were dissatisfied with God's provision. We don't like this. We want some meat. And God gave them some meat and the plague broke out and consumed them in the outskirts of the camp. They were dissatisfied. A hard heart is dissatisfied with the provision of God. His infinite wisdom, His goodness, His mercy, His knowledge are all coming to play on behalf of Israel and they are dissatisfied. Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? They're dissatisfied with the providence of God because they're in the wilderness by design. God brought them there. We don't like the scarcity. We don't like the conditions. We don't like the circumstances. We're dissatisfied with what you're doing, God. That is a great provocation to God. Can you provide it in the wilderness? And then thirdly, they were dissatisfied with His timing. The banquet of Canaan was coming, but not now. Now, God's proving them, He's testing them, He's humbling them, and He's feeding them manna once a day. One gathering a day, twice before the Sabbath. And He's bringing water out of a rock for His holy purposes. And their impatience is a lack of faith in God. And how do they express it? We don't like this. We don't like this. A hard heart is always dissatisfied with God. And the way that dissatisfaction is expressed is a moving away from God. 
Now, if we were to put our finger on one thing through the 40 years, which was an ongoing expression of the testing of God that they had done 10 times where God swear they would not enter into the rest, what is the one word the Bible gives us over and over again that expresses dissatisfaction? It's murmuring or it's complaining. When I complain, I am saying, God, I'm dissatisfied with your provision. I'm dissatisfied with your providence. God, I'm basically dissatisfied with you. Aren't you glad for the Savior who redeems us from all iniquity, even the great provocation of complaining? They were testing God. Recently, I was in a grocery store, and I slapped a $20 bill on the counter there to pay for my goods, and the clerk pulled out that magic pen, swiped it. I knew immediately something was wrong. I, I had paid enough with cash in our card society. I was like, I looked up, her eyes caught mine. My first thought was, do I just lose the 20 or do I go to jail? I don't know. It, it was a different color. I'd never seen it. She saw it, I saw it. She said, excuse me, sir. I said, okay, sure. She went and got somebody that came over, you know, looked at it, swiped it, said, can you follow me? Yeah, okay. Went to the big desk and managers come in. They start looking at it, swipe it. Finally, they said, it's good. Now, their testing was not a provocation to me, although they were testing my $20 bill, which means they were testing me. You know why that was a wise thing to do? Because they don't trust me. And why should they? Because they don't know me. Hebrews chapter 3. I was always grieved with this generation, saying they do always err in their heart. They have not known my ways. They didn't know him. And they should have. Should they not have known him? Should they not have known the expressions of His mercy in Egypt, how He guarded and protected them in Goshen and wiped out the nation of Israel, just completely wiped it out to demonstrate His justice and His mercy, and He brought them on eagles' wings to Himself? Should they not have known Him? No, they didn't care to know Him. They didn't care to know Him. And that's a problem of a hardened heart. We don't care to know God in our natural state, do we? That 40 years, according to Deuteronomy 8, was designed by God to prove them, to humble them, to see what was in their heart, whether they would keep His commandments or not. He suffered them to hunger. He caused them to be humbled so that they would know man would not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God shall man live. In other words, God is teaching them The bread that I'm giving you, the physical bread, cannot satisfy your soul. You've got to have more. You've got to have a word, a manifestation, a revelation from me about me. And that will satisfy your soul and protect you when you come into the land of plenty. Or when you're in the land of hunger. Right? But they were dissatisfied with the manna and the water and with all the conditions, because they didn't understand their souls needed to live by the Word of God also. Bread will do nothing for your soul. Nothing you own, created, will do anything for your soul. You need the Holy Spirit's Word of God to resist and move away from a hardened heart which is dissatisfied with God and ultimately departs from Him. Isaiah 55 verse 4. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? And you labor for that which will not satisfy. Hearken unto me, come and let your what? Soul delight itself in fatness. Why are you laboring to have a bread that can do nothing for your soul? When Christ is the bread of life, who is the great satisfier of your soul. See, their hardness, their provocation, their testing, getting God to prove Himself, whether He's reliable or not, 
was a dissatisfaction of what they had seen, what they had heard, because they didn't know God and His ways. And so, unless we know God and His ways, we too in soul will be dissatisfied and we will be empty. Someone pointed out just recently a young man who had experienced great accolades through one of the singing competitions they have on TV and on social media after uh, getting to the end. He was one of the last few contestants. He had done so well. He said, can somebody tell me why I feel so empty? Yes, church, you can tell him, can't you? Because winning singing competitions and being praised and having accolades can do nothing for your soul. Nothing. And you will be just as empty as you start. Why was the man empty? I mean, things were going great for him. Well, I, I don't know all the reasons. I don't, I don't know where he is with the Lord, but we do know from Scripture, Isaiah 55. Why are you trying to be satisfied with something that you know cannot do it? Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. What's God saying? I'm the source. I'm it. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I am the soul satisfier. That's why I saved you and I'm saving you. Harden not your hearts as in the provocation, the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers proved me, tempted me, and saw my works, 40 years long I was grieved with this generation. Why? They don't know my ways because they don't know me. Hebrews chapter 8, God is going to overcome our dissatisfaction in Him with what? A new covenant of grace where every single recipient will know Him infallibly. They will know Him. No question whatsoever because He will open their eyes and reveal Himself to them. That's the glory and wonder of the grace of God. Now we said the root cause in Hebrews 3, we look at it, and here I'm finishing up, is that the evil, unbelieving, hardened heart is departing from the living God because of the deceitfulness of sin. Now if you track down that word deceitfulness and the times it's used in the New Testament, which is not too many, almost every time it has to do with being satisfied. Okay? Mark 4 and Matthew 13. The deceitfulness of riches. What is the seduction of riches? It promises what it can't do. Oh, how satisfied. Oh, how happy you'll be. That's a lie. Money can do nothing for your soul. Money's needful. You need to have it. Can't do anything for your soul. It's deceitful. Ephesians 4.22, that you put off the old man concerning the former conversation according to the deceitful lusts. What's so deceitful about the old man lust? It's a lie. You can never be satisfied. What was so deceitful about asking for meat for their lust? Meat's not a problem. The problem is lust. Your lust can never be satisfied. Never. For all eternity, the lust of the wicked will never be satisfied. Never. And then Colossians 2.8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Vain deceit. Empty delusion. Empty seduction. Empty deceitfulness. Same word. It leaves you empty. After the rudiments of the world, and not after what? Christ. Beware lest someone leads you captive, leads you away through an empty lie of deceit and not after Christ who satisfies the soul. So the root cause, the root issue of the departure from God with an evil, unbelieving, hardened heart is the seduction of sin. Or the seduction that whatever you see out there, whatever you see on your phone, whatever you see out in the world is going to satisfy you. And now you know, right? It's not. Do you hear the Holy Spirit speaking to you this morning? It'll never satisfy the soul. And of course, the delusion of sin started in the garden. What's that delusion? You shall not surely die. 
Are you deluded by that? What happened? They surely died and every human being died in them. And the second delusion, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. In other words, you get to be the God who will decide what satisfies your own soul and then nobody can tell you, nobody can counsel you, you be who you want, what you want, where you want, and you go for it and you can be the God that satisfies your own soul. Line number two. So if we believe through a heart that's trusting God and is not being hardened, because we have a new heart that's soft and pliable, and we're not departing from the living God, but moving toward the living God, and sin is not seducing us because we know from Scripture, we see, we understand, and the Holy Spirit is enlightening us to sin seduction, then what's the upshot? We are hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit through the Scripture. We are not slipping. We are not sluggish. We are not forsaking the assembly. We are heeding the warnings of God. And finally, we are moving in toward God. Sin and all, all of our faults and failures, we're moving to the Lordship of Christ because He is our hope, our salvation, our all. Now this afternoon, what we'll cover then, looking at the progression of a hardened heart and then the illustration then, how does exhortation fit into that? See, The counter... The danger we avoid is this hard heart seduced by sin. The way we avoid it is, surprisingly, unexpectedly, is exhortation. Your exhortation to one another has real meaning and value, and God uses it to keep us from a hardened heart. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Help us now to hear the Holy Spirit speaking to us through the word of your testimony concerning the supremacy of Christ and how a hard heart maybe has already been progressing even in us this morning. Lord, awaken us to it and help us now through the Holy Spirit to return, to come back, to do all that this book is calling us to do in being what we're called to be to one another. And may we draw near in a true heart. May we hold fast because you promised to hold us. And may we... Consider one another to love and to provoke into good works. May we, by your grace and mercy and your love, continue on the pathway that you set out for us, looking to the end, to the hope that's set before us, where we'll be with Christ forever and ever, where our souls will be completely and totally, fully content and satisfied forever. Keep us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.